Welcome to the Desert City Church Podcast. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. As a new church, our desire is to follow Jesus, love others, and experience life that is truly life. These sermons help form us to be the kind of people God created us to be. We hope you find them inspiring and encouraging. If you have any questions or things we can pray for, feel free to reach out to us at info at desertcitychurch.com. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Caleb. I serve as one of the pastors at Desert Springs Bible Church. Uh, If you're new today, welcome. I know Jared, who usually serves as lead pastor here, would want me to say that to you. Uh, Jared and I are pulpit swapping, so I serve at a church just down the street. Jared and I have known each other for... Year, it's, it seems longer than it is, really. If you know Jared, uh, you know what I mean by that. So, um, known Jared for a while. We do a ton of stuff in the Valley. I wanted to tell you guys before I begin, you have an amazing lead pastor. Jared is not only, he's not only a great leader, he is an awesome follower of Jesus who really does love you guys. Uh, usually, um, when we gather, he's got some cool thing, uh, some cool way that he's seen God at work in and through your church family. And so I just wanted to tell you, you're blessed to have Jared, but also Jared's blessed to have you all. Uh, today, one of the things that we're going to talk about is what it means to be a church family. So if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, it, whether you've been following him for your whole life or you just started following five minutes ago, uh, Jesus calls us into not only uh, relationship with him, but also relationship with other people that follow him. If you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is, maybe maybe this is your first time ever inside of a church setting and you're wondering, is the roof going to collapse? Not likely, but you never know. Hopefully that brings you peace. But I'm glad you're here today because one of the things uh, that often gets misunderstood is uh, we oftentimes think as a, as a culture that church is a bunch of people who totally agree with each other, who are all like know each other, and where there's, they all, you know, they're either all fake or there's no problems or they're all righteous people. And I'm here to tell you that that's definitely 100% not true. So if you are still trying to figure out who Jesus is and what that means to you, I'm glad you're here. You get to eavesdrop on us as we talk through what it looks like to be part of a church. Now, uh, for me, I grew up in a super conservative uh, family. Uh, It was Trump country before Trump country existed. And the reason that we were Christian was because it was the American thing to do. And along with that, at least in our tradition, uh, there was a bunch of rules and regulations. Like you don't go to movies, you don't dance, couldn't dance anyways to save my life, so that rule didn't bother me. Couldn't smoke, couldn't drink. That was a big bummer, especially when I got into junior high and high school. So I remember... (laughs) Being in one of the pastor's house, and again, you're not allowed to watch movies, especially R-rated movies, unless you want a one-way ticket to hell. And I remember being at their, the pastor's house, and he had a cassette, VHS cassette of The Terminator. Yeah. And I remember feeling so justified in saying, all of these hypocrites are full of it. And so I stopped going. I got bigger than my mom, and so they stopped making me go to church. Uh, In high school, I fell in with a group of neo-Nazi skinheads, and I became one myself. Uh, I didn't want anything to do with God, and all my identity was wrapped up in uh, how I was made, and I thought I was better than everybody else. I still think that uh, most days, so I'm in process. Don't act like you guys don't do that either. (laughs) 
And uh, in that, I didn't go to college, but in, the, in that season of my life when I probably should have been either at trade school or college, uh, I uh, stopped doing the skinhead thing, kind of fell out of that. It was more of a logical uh, decision than it was a religious decision. I remember saying, and by the way, the neo-Nazi skinheads, the basic fundamental belief is that white people are the master race, which by the way, not true. Uh, but the ideology is you're the master race. And I remember looking around saying, well, if we're the master race, then where are all the really wealthy, successful 60-year-old skinheads? You wouldn't believe it. Couldn't find one. So I was like, this is stupid. And the only thing I had going for me is I was a drummer, and we had an ad in the Phoenix New Times. Any New Times readers out there? Whoop, whoop. And uh, this is before Craigslist, had an ad in the classified, said I'm a drummer. We were looking for a bass player, and a girl from Desert Springs Bible Church who played keyboards was dialing drummers. And she called me up and said, hey, are you a drummer? Yeah, I'm a drummer. Can you come play at our church? Our drummer, drummer just canceled. So I drove up over the weekend, played at the church, and now I'm the lead pastor of Desert Springs Bible Church. <laughs> One of the things that really surprised me about uh, as I gave my life over to Jesus, and by the way, it took some years, um, was just how weird the church is. And I don't mean weird like all the stuff you see on TV. I mean like I was in community with people I wanted nothing to do with. I was at people's houses that I, did, I didn't have anything in common with them. I was gathering on Sunday and singing uh, the same song in the same direction with people who I fundamentally opposed, <laughs> right? I would hear about their politics, and I'm like, you're so dumb. And I, I would hear about their views on the economy or their views on music. I mean, do you know how many country music fans, Unrepentant country music fans are in the congregation that I serve. Way too many. I don't know what their problem is, but they need Jesus just like the rest of us. And I, be I, I began to, to, to realize that I was at table with all sorts of people who were totally different than me. And it's dawned on me over these last couple of decades that one of the things that Jesus seems to be up to when he calls us to himself, is he also calls us into community with people that we have nothing in common with in order to shape us. In fact, I would argue that the more eclectic the group of Jesus followers, the faster your discipleship will be. Discipleship is another way to say um, the intentional process of following Jesus and conforming our life to his. You see, when I'm around people who are just like me, and they agree with all of my perspectives, and all of our prejudices are the same, I never, or maybe I rarely, have to do things like extend grace, forgive them, bear their burdens, show long-suffering with their stupid ideas. But you see, when I'm at table, when I'm, when I'm with people who are very different than me, when I'm in a community of people, who are so different that the only power force in the universe capable of binding them together is a resurrected Christ, when that happens, not only is my life changed and changed quickly, but I believe that Jesus is glorified. And especially in this particular cultural moment, Jesus is up to something as he binds people together. So I want to ask you this question. Who is at your table? Who is at your table? 
Now, for us in the West, and for those of us that have grown up in America or are familiar with Western culture, there is, uh, we lose something when we think about tables, because for many of us, we're isolated consumers. We view our life as me first and everyone else second, and I am just my own individual, especially as Arizonans. We're kind of cowboys, you know, the cowboy rancher. We're going to do things on our own. We don't need family. We don't need community. We don't need, we don't need uh, our extended family. It's just us. And so mealtime, generally speaking, by and large, we're doing it just by ourselves or a handful of people around us, or we use mealtime as business time. And so one of the things that we lose especially as we read through the scriptures, when we see Jesus at a table, one of the things that we can sometimes miss is just how profound inviting someone to your table is. For those of us that are from cultures maybe not like America, you already know this, and so I'm preaching to the choir. But to say to someone, please come sit at my table, is more than just, let's eat together. To say to someone, especially in Jesus' day, please come sit at my table, this is what we're articulating, to the people and to everyone else watching. I accept you. I welcome you into my life. I want to be associated with you. When we invite someone to our table, when we are in community with one another, we're saying, you're my people, and I want everyone else to know that I'm your people too. In fact, Jesus is constantly doing this. As you read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that Jesus does exponentially more ministry at tables than he does in temples. Jesus is constantly saying to other people, please come sit at my table or let me come sit at your table. And he's communicating to them and to everyone else, you're my people and I'm your people. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm fully accepting everything about you, but I'm accepting you for who you are and I'm welcoming you into my community. So table is a way to communicate acceptance and community. So, to put it another way, who's at your table? Now, uh, have you guys ever had uh, like family holidays that didn't go so good? Come on, talk to me now. I heard this is a Church of God church. Am I wrong? Because the volume isn't high enough for this to be a Church of God church. I mean, unless it's Church of God Anderson, then we know, okay, what's it doing more? You guys ever had a family dinner that went the wrong way? Yes. Yeah. Remember that family dinner when somebody started talking about who they voted for? Yeah. Some of us try to avoid it at all costs. You know that when you're at table with people who are different than you, that sparks fly? Has that ever happened to you? Tension rises. Frustration, disappointment, sadness, and anger can be an ever-present reality when we're in community with people who are different than us. So what are we to do? Desert City, what are we to do? If we are really to pursue unity in the midst of diversity, if we're really going to have a diverse table, what do we do? Because, listen, this is not unity. Unity doesn't happen in pews or in rows. Unity happens in the round or at tables. That's where real unity is seen. So what are we to do? Well, we're going to take a look at an ancient letter. Uh, It's called, we call it Colossians. It's a letter written by one of the earliest followers of Jesus to some of the earliest followers of Jesus. Uh, The author, uh, we're pretty sure his name is Paul. And he's writing to a group of Jesus followers who are just as eclectic and different as we are. And so uh, I'm going to go through this with you, and uh, I'm going to need your help, okay? Okay. 
I'm going to need your help, okay? Okay, so I just want to tell you, Church of God people, I serve at a Bible church. Bible churches are L7 weenies, okay? Bible churches are square, and they're talking back more than you're talking back to me. I'm going to need y'all's help, okay? But now, so this is Paul, he's a pastor, writing to some of the earliest followers of Jesus. Now, real quick, do you know, you know this, I know you know this, you guys are so smart. You know that every letter has an occasion. There is some occasion that has necessitated a letter to be written. You know that? Every email, every letter, there's some reason for the thing to be written. Now, I want you to think about why is it that the author is writing this letter, okay? Here we go. But now, he says, put away all of the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. TV timeout. Filthy language right here is not just George Carlin's seven words you can't say on TV. This is also harsh language, a, a word you can say on TV but used as a weapon. You know that you can use nice words as weapons, don't you? Okay, let's keep going. Filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, first of all, that's weird, isn't it? Put off the old self, put on the new self. Isn't that weird? What a weird way to talk. And so here's the gym. The author is using this, this metaphor, this, this uh, word image of taking off a jacket and putting on a new jacket, or taking off a cloak and putting on a new cloak. Uh, if you've ever had to serve in an industry in where you wore a uniform, you know what this is like. When you put on the uniform, you're signifying to everybody else that something has changed. Uh, we would have, especially in this particular community, uh, uh, a distinction between an off-duty police officer and an on-duty police officer. And one of, the, one of the distinguishing factors can sometimes be that a uniform is put on, military members as well. You guys with me so far? So you take off the old self. So the old self is another way to say the old value system that we all have naturally. The old value system which says this, in order for me to, be, in order for me to find peace, in order for me to find joy, in order for me to find meaning, truth, and value, I have to destroy you. I have to diminish you. In order for me to level up, I need you to level down. And in order for you to level down, in order for me to level up, according to the old value system, what are the weapons at my, what are the tools at my disposal? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language, and deceit, lying to each other, right? Some of you have experienced this in your family. Some of us have experienced this in the workplace. Someone felt like they needed to level up, that they needed to be made great, and in order to do so, what do they do? What do they have to do in their minds? According to the old value system, they're going to destroy. But Jesus comes and says, no, no, no. See, Jesus flips that worldview upside down. He says there's a new world system. There's a new value system. And it goes like this. If you want to be the greatest among everybody else, you must become the least. You want to be a leader to all, you must be a servant to all. Jesus reverses the old world order. And what Paul here, the author, is doing is he's using this imagery and saying, don't put on the clothes of the old value system. Put on the clothes of the new value system that Jesus taught us and that Jesus showed us. Are you with me so far? And so if you're going to put on the new self, you're going to put on that new value system, you need to throw all these things away. What was the occasion for the letter? What do you think this church was doing to each other? You're never going to guess. They were lying to each other. They were showing wrath and anger towards one another. They were deceiving one another. They were slandering each other. You with me so far? Yes. 
And so the author is saying, hey, what are you guys doing? You don't have to do that anymore. There's a new value system at play. Uh, let's continue. You are being renewed. Notice that that seems to be like it's a process, not just like instant. Uh, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not, TV time out, what is the occasion for the letter? They're fighting? Come on. You guys are do it to each other. You're just not willing to admit it. What do you guys do to each other? What are they doing? Come on. Lying, deceiving, slandering, cursing each other, right? Some of you right now are whispering to each other curses at me. That's fine. Gossiping. Yeah, great. The, the best way to gossip, by the way, is in the form of a prayer request because no one will catch you, right? I'd like to pray for Jim. He's an idiot. Okay. Now, to make things even more interesting, look at the type of people that he names because, remember, the old value system is all about othering. It's about using and theming, right? Because I need to make sure that the uses are elevated so the thems can be brought low. That's the old value system. It's using and theming, okay? And we all using and theming. We're all, we've all got some uses, and we've definitely got some thems. Notice how he divides the universe. In Christ, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision. Now, I was going to make a joke here, but I decided to cut it out. It was nuts. <laughs> Barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. So watch first. Religious. Now this is more than just religious. Jew and Gentile is also nationalistic. Because the Jewish people, we, we separate church and state. They definitely didn't. There was Jewish and there was Greek. And these are two different nationalistic systems, right? Their patriotism looked differently. And then you had uh, circumcision and uncircumcision, which was about religious devotion. This would have been the people who are theologically conservative and theologically liberal. This would have been the people who have right doctrine, Church of God, and everyone else is going to hell. It's the insiders and the outsiders. And then what's the third category? Barbarian and Scythian. Now, this is kind of interesting because this, this kind of breaks the paradigm a little bit. Barbarian, and, and, and if I sin in doing this, um, please forgive me. I couldn't think of a better way to talk about how barbarian would have felt than this. This is kind of what some people might call, not me, but some people might say is a backwoods hick. You know, they've got a gun rack, they're driving domestic truck, and they live in Buckeye, right? So <laughs> barbarian is kind of, and again, I would never say anything like that, but kind of the rural outsiders, okay? Because this is written to a people who are inside the urban center, right? And rural people have just as much hatred for the city slickers as anybody. But in this case, barbarian is those people outside the city. But then Scythian is interesting because one of the things that we may forget is that Scythians were outside of the empire at the time. And they were militant. They were really good at killing people. They were crafty. They were scary. And perhaps one way to think about it would be an Iranian freedom fighter who's sophisticated and can take you out like that. And then you have a slave and free. And boy, for those of us that have grown up in America, do we not still feel the echoes of slavery and its damage in our own nation. Okay. Now, why does he choose these divisions to say, in Christ, there is not 
Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek, male. Uh, he goes on to say, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Why does he name those people? Because those are the people that made up the church that he's writing the letter to. Why else would he name them? Right? This isn't a rhetorical argument. This is boots on the ground, real, honest to God, a group of people following Jesus. Now let's push it. In Christ, there is no. What are our divisions? Black lives matter, blue lives matter. Oh, yeah, the tension is rising. Good, good, good. That's good. Yeah. You can't fire me, so that's good. Trump or whoever the Democratic candidate, you know, Bernie or whatever. What other divisions? Millennial. Right? <laughs> boomer. <laughs> millennial. Okay, Boomer. <laughs> what other divisions? Majority culture and minority culture. Native born, immigrant. Male, female. Right? I, if you're not feeling tension yet, you might not be paying attention. But you see, the, the author here is saying, no, no, in Jesus, your identity is formed first by your relationship to Jesus, who calls you into a church family, calls us into uh, the kingdom of God, calls us first and foremost, not only as people made in the image and likeness of God, but as citizens of the kingdom of God. And therefore, all of these other divisions, though they are real and beautiful, oftentimes they are secondary. And I believe that Jesus intentionally puts barbarians and Greeks, Jews and Scythians, slave and free, into small, group, uh, small groups called local churches in order for us to have influence on each other, in order for us to have tension, frustration, anger, disappointment, and conflict, in order to shape us more and more into his image. In fact, I want to I encourage you to think about this. If you are not walking away from at least 50% of your gatherings with your church family, either feeling frustrated, disappointed, sad, angry, or confused, I don't think we're doing it right. Here's, here's how we can maintain comfort in a church setting. Hey, isn't the world wonderful? I just love you all. What do you think about the election? Let's not talk about that. What do you think about generational differences? Ah! And people say, those are things you don't talk about in polite company. You guys ever heard that? Great. I don't think the church is meant to be a polite company. Why do I think that? Because I read Colossians 3. I think you should too. I think we should, in the name of Jesus, open ourselves up to being different than one another and letting Jesus come into those tense moments to do his work. In fact, I'm going to argue this that the spirit of the living God does his most magnificent work in the midst of tension, disappointment, anger, and frustration. Amen. And then oftentimes, those are the things, those are the words that we use to describe how we feel when he's working on us. I know not all of us go to the gym. I like to pretend to. <laughs> but if you go to the gym and you're not sweating when you're done, you're not doing it right. If you go to the gym and your muscles are not hurting when you're done, you're not doing it right. And when you're a part of an eclectic group of all sorts of different kinds of people bound together only by the name, power, and spirit of the living God and not walking away sweating with our muscles hurting, I don't think we're doing it right. 
Welcome to church. Are you encouraged today? Let's keep going. How do we do this? Above all, put on... Remember, what's that new self look like? What's that new coat look like? Put on love. I love this part. Which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ... Okay, so everybody take in a big, deep breath. In the same way that that breath came into your lungs and nourished your entire body with oxygen, so too let the peace of Jesus dwell in you richly. You see, because if the peace of Jesus Christ dwells within me and I'm able to put on love, then these, these things that cause anger, frustration, disappointment, and tension between us, they do tend to, though they're important, they do tend to get smaller. To which you were called in one body, rule in your hearts. What rules in your hearts this morning? Now, as a church family, we're going to take communion here in just a moment. And we have a job to do. You see, communion is not only about our vertical relationship with Jesus. It's also about our horizontal relationship with one another. When we take communion, I know that we take it as tables, and we're going to go up to the table, and we're going to take the elements. But I want you to see that you're taking it as part of a bigger table. Because when we take communion, we're not only reminding ourselves of the sacrifice and the love of Jesus Christ, we're also reminding ourselves of the love that we are to share with each other, especially a bunch of misfits like us. When we take communion, we remember and worship, but we also proclaim to one another, you're my people, and I'm yours. And when we sing, we are doing something very important because we're not only singing to Jesus, we're also singing to one another. Take a look at what the author says as he concludes this section. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Do you see what the author's saying? When we sing, we're not only singing this way, but we're reminding each other of the love and the grace of God made known to us through Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we're saying, I am yours, and we are your people. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you, and we give you thanks for the many ways that you provide for us and bless us. As we take communion now in just a moment, Lord, we want to be a people that remember your magnificent, powerful love, your radical grace, and the wondrous ways that you bind us together in unity and love, even in the midst of our differences. Though important, Lord, we know that they are so important, but we know that they are not ultimate. For it is you that binds us together, it is you that gives us our identity, and it's you that draws us into unity with each other. And so, Jesus, we give you thanks. Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on us in this moment? And Jesus, we ask these things, knowing that you love us. You're powerful to bring them about. And we entrust ourselves to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.